0: Well, hey, everybody, welcome to Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so excited that you've joined us. Uh, And many thanks to those of you who are hosting watch parties at your homes now. We know that in these confusing times where we're all kind of separated, but also still together, that uh, things may look a little bit different. But the good news of the gospel remains the same. About 10 years ago or so, my dad told me that he had signed us up for the National Father Son Golf Tournament in Myrtle Beach. Now, this was surprising to me for two main reasons. One, I'd not even played golf for any length of time. I couldn't even remember the last time I played golf. And two, it brought back instant memories of being a, a young man playing every year in the Father Son Golf Tournament each Father's Day at the place that my dad played golf. It was a complete disaster every single time. It, because my dad is a great golfer, but his son more specialized in, and I quote, showing him parts of the golf course that he never even knew existed. So this time leading up to the big tournament, the job I had was just absolutely crazy. I had no free time, I, I couldn't really do anything. So so even though my dad had given me a really nice set of golf clubs a golf bag, an umbrella, tees, uh, balls, everything I would ever need, it all went unused. It just it just sat in my garage. And, and every once in a while, he would call me and he would ask, you know, to kind of to check in. You know, well, did you at least go to the driving range? Nope, didn't go. But I had a plan. Each night before bed, I read a book called How to Perfect Your Golf Swing. And as I was drifting off to sleep each night, I would would read these pages and I would imagine myself doing all of these absolutely amazing things. So it probably doesn't surprise you to hear that we took third place in the tournament. That is third from last place. Yes, out of the hundreds of fathers and sons who played in the golf tournament, we were almost at the bottom of the entire list. Here's a photo of me celebrating our big victory. You can't even see our name on there because it's so far down the list. But my, my dad decided in this particular case, maybe it was just better for me to celebrate by myself in this photo. Now, we certainly did have a lot of fun, but I will tell you this. It was clear that my brief dedication to knowing a lot about how to have a good golf swing and actually having a golf swing were very different things. And so while I had devoted myself to consuming the right information, it all just stayed inside my head. But doing is the true expression of devotion. Doing is the true expression of devotion. Not just knowing, but doing. And it took all of maybe about I would say one hole for me to start to really appreciate how truly great the chasm is between knowing and doing. And when it comes to our lives of faith, don't we often run into these same kinds of issues? Because when you think about it, it's possible for us to know all kinds of things about what is in the Bible and to still not really get it, isn't it? We, we can know tons, of th- we can do this with everything. We can know tons of information about all kinds of stuff and still not ever put it into practice. We, we can ne- even know all kinds of details about who Jesus is, what he came to do, but we still might not actually have a real relationship with him. So I'm not saying that knowing isn't important. Knowing is especially knowing the right information, is certainly important. But if it stops there, if we never put it to its intended use, then we will never fully benefit from what we know. Last week, Rick talked a lot about the history of the church, and he, he took us all the way back to the beginning at the time of the apostles, these, these people who spent, physically spent time with Jesus and learned from him. And he talked about all the ways that the church over time, over this whole church history period, has kept moving. Sometimes those moves have been forward, and honestly, sometimes those moves have been backward. But there has been movement. The overall, though, the overall arc of history proves that the reason we are even in this worship service right now together is because at least some of the followers of Jesus have always maintained a sense of what is vital in the church. And not only that, but they've been willing to put it into action. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be in a series called Back to the Future. We're going to be looking at uh, the four core elements of the church that have not changed. They are the same yesterday, today, and they will be the same tomorrow. And my prayer for us is that during this time of uncertainty and challenge in our world and and even inside our own church, that we can come together as the body of Christ, centered around a true sense of what is vital and that we develop a growing desire to put these core elements into action for God's glory. But before we jump in and take a look at at the first one today, let me just pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you don't just give us information, but you lead us to transformation by your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, we just ask that you by the power of your Spirit come into each of our lives right now in this moment and reveal truth to our hearts that we may never be the same, that we may never just think of you in theoretical terms, but we think of you in relational terms only that we know who you are and who we are in you. And Lord, lead us and guide us into these next steps that we might do your will, follow in your footsteps, and do so for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. The four core elements we're going to be walking through over the next four weeks are found in the book of Acts in the New Testament. Actually, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it's just one sentence. But that one sentence contains these four elements. And for those of you that don't know maybe a lot about the book of Acts, it's essentially the narrative history of the early church. Whereas, you know, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they recount the events that that led up to and include uh, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And the book of Acts, though, is written also by the author of Luke, It tells the beginning of the now what phase of the early church, because everything had been turned upside down. And so if you turn to Acts chapter two, you're going to notice that that what we're going to be talking about is is all happening either on the same day of Pentecost or right after. But it's described at the beginning of Acts two that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus that were all gathered together in this upper room and and the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit ignited a movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before or after. And and Peter then stands up and gives this amazing sermon. And then it says that that God added about 3,000 to the followers of Jesus just as a result. And so even though this book is is oftentimes referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, the reality here is that, well, yes, there's the Acts of the Apostles, but God is ultimately one who is the one who is doing amazing things. So so the book could also be called uh, Acts of God or Acts of the Holy Spirit, just as easily as Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Apostles, because it tells how God went about continuing his plan for salvation through these early followers who knew Jesus, who, were, who trusted Jesus, and then who were ultimately sent by Jesus into this new phase of God's ongoing work. And God continued to add to their numbers. He continued, as he does today, to draw more and more people to himself. And so Acts two forty two says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so there we have our four core elements we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks, the apostles teaching fellowship, they says the breaking of bread, but we, we call that communion because it's not just, just breaking bread. There was a purpose there and prayer. And and these are the vital elements that the early church believed were absolutely non-negotiable. Even though as the modern day Western evangelical church, we've often tried, you know, if we're being honest, we've often tried to, to layer more and more things over the top. I hope that we can see that digging back to these essentials and uncovering these vital things, is how we right now in today's world as Grace Church will move forward into God's desired future. The non-negotiables have not changed, even though the time has changed and the culture has changed. Now, one of the reasons that the early church had a sense of what, what is vital and they held so tightly to that is because they were always on the verge of collapse, we, we tend to forget this because we kind of think of the Bible in our own understanding, our own context, and we, we tend to forget that the contents of the entire Bible from, from cover to cover were, yes, of course, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were written by the hands of people who were extreme minorities. These people were not at all in a dominant cultural position. They didn't have prominent places in society. Instead, they were persecuted and often even executed for their beliefs. And when you think about that, then, you know, statistically speaking, when you're just even considering the numbers, the early church should have really had no chance of survival because the odds were just too stacked against them. But here's the thing, they clung to Christ and his promises because That's all they had to trust. They clung to Christ and to his promises because there was nothing else. That's all they had to trust. And while at its essence, its core, this has always been true throughout the history of the church, in different times and in different ways, this reality comes to light. But in our particular time, especially in the Western modern church, it's really easy for us to forget how true this is because of. How many different ways we can distract ourselves or choose to make ourselves more comfortable so that we don't really have to think about the hard stuff. And sometimes it's hard even to trust Jesus because let's face it, sometimes we push him so far down on the list. We exhaust all of the other options before we even maybe would ever get to him. But when you consider places in our world right now, especially in parts of Africa and Asia today, you will find an entirely different understanding of what it means to trust God, much more like what the early church was experiencing in terms of trusting God. And therefore, I don't think it's coincidental that Christianity in the United States just continues to decline while it's absolutely exploding in places that are desperate to hear the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ. One of my friends from seminary is a a man from Nigeria, uh, Seth, who refers to himself often as a missionary to the United States. A missionary to the United States. The first time he told me that, I will admit, it just kind of caught me off guard. Uh, But then he went on to say, well... It's clear that your distracted lives have left you longing for all the wrong things. You're longing for all the wrong things. And as much as I wanted to be offended by that, and as much as I wanted to tell him how wrong he was, I couldn't really say much, especially after hearing his story of just coming to this country. So if we're really being honest with ourselves, and this is hard to do, we are often more interested in pursuing our preferences than pursuing Christ. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but isn't it true? Because I don't don't know about you, but in churches today, I don't don't hear a lot of arguments breaking out by uh, somebody saying like, well, you know, we just trust Jesus too much. Or, you know what, we we are so good at loving one another and serving our community, we we really need to pull that back. I don't hear that. No, instead, I, I hear things like, well, I don't like that song, or it's too loud, or I don't like the preacher, or my small group can't get along. Or I don't like it because it's online, or I don't like it because it's outside, And I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of this, so don't worry, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Because of course, I have my preferences too. But the truth is, inside or outside, high tech or low tech, online or in person, the message itself is what saves, not the delivery method. The message saves, not the delivery method. The culture of the world is always is always and ever pushing us toward losing our sense of what is vital in favor of pursuing what we would prefer above everything else. Our preferences dominate our decision-making. But the early church did not have that luxury. They knew something that we would be wise to remember, especially given our current circumstances. The format is temporary. The message is eternal. The format is temporary, but the message is eternal. The early church was constantly having to change the way that they gathered together because they were trying to avoid arrest and persecution and execution. They rolled with the changes because they were far more interested in the message than the delivery method of the message. Sometimes they would meet in the evenings. Sometimes they would meet before dawn. Sometimes they would meet in the temple. Sometimes they would meet in people's homes. It really was a wide variety and the circumstances dictated where and when they could meet. This is somewhat like how secret churches meet in China today. Interestingly, the the Greco-Roman historian, his his name was Pliny the Younger. He was a governor in the Roman Empire and and he was certainly not a believer, but it's interesting because uh, he wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan Asking for advice about what to do, what he called this uh, strange group or strange, I think he called it a club, strange club that called themselves Christians. This is what he says. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as if to a God, speak to one another, and then bind themselves by oath not to do some crime But not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of ordinary and innocent food. And so the point is that the early church knew that even though their circumstances might shift and change, and might do so frequently, they were still able to hold on to a sense of what is vital because that is what glued them together as a community. They were far less concerned about their independence and instead found themselves with a great dependence on the Lord and also on one another for their very survival. And one of the key things that united them and bound them to each other was that they devoted, remember Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And actually a better translation of that because this is an ongoing movement. It should be more like they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was not like a one-time thing or one and done. This was an ongoing thing. And now, while... You and I have the gift and the benefit of reading about all this after the fact. The apostles were literally writing the pages of history through their experiences of preaching and teaching the word of God and then watching the Holy Spirit bring people to faith. These apostles truly believed that they had a message that the world needed to hear. And their actions expressed their true devotion to that very mission. Now, church, we have the same word of God, the same power of the Holy Spirit. But the question is, do do we have the same sense of how vital this truly is? Do our actions reflect a true devotion to God? Or are we just longing for the wrong things instead? Because during this particular time in church history, right now that you and I are living in, there are lots of reasons for us to wonder about this. For example, there was a recent study put out uh, that, that told us that one in three professing Christians during this time of COVID has stopped attending any kind of church service, regardless of the format. They've just completely stopped. We've actually... At Grace Church, we've seen this kind of of trend, these kinds of numbers that support that. And so it's just a reality that we're living in, a time where we can pretty easily lose our sense of what is vital, especially when our preferences take precedence. When we put our preferences first, we start to lose a sense of what is vital. And it's vital for us to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed and studied. And it's, it's vital for us to praise and worship God. We can do that in many different ways. We do that through songs. We do that through, through singing, through gathering. Tea. We even do that through giving. It's vital that we are being knit together in community with one another, even when we're spread apart and even as the circumstances constantly seem to shift and change. And it's also vital that we grow in relationship with one another as we love and care and encourage one another through these difficult times. So make no mistake, no matter what, hear this, God continues to bring his body together called Grace Church. And he is certainly not done with us yet. Be encouraged by that. I want to give us three key realities about the apostles teaching that I think are just as relevant to us today as they were 2000 years ago. The first one is that the spirit of God brings the word of God to life the spirit of God brings the word of God to life. God still acts through his word whenever and wherever it is preached. This is an amazing thing. And, and Apostle Paul knew this very well. In Romans ten seventeen, he writes the words, faith comes by hearing. And what he meant by that is that whenever and wherever the word of God is faithfully preached, then the Holy Spirit of God works through that word of God to accomplish whatever God's purposes are. Isaiah talks about this in in chapter 55. Uh, Isaiah says, uh, this is the Lord. So, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That is a promise. That means that when we are not giving our opinions and when we're not speaking our own words, but when we're speaking the word of God and preaching and teaching that word of God, then the Holy Spirit actually activates and brings people to faith in a way that pleases God because his word does not return empty. And so Paul just doesn't mean that God's active saving word is is just to be preached by maybe one person or, or even just like a pastor he's calling out the people in the entire church saying, hey, we need more boots on the ground. We have got to bring the good news to lost people. He expands this right before he says faith comes by hearing. He's leading up to this by saying, uh, this is Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him, Jesus, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear Without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so the encouragement from Paul and the call from Paul is that all of us, all of us, have a role to play in bringing God's word to others. It's not just one person's job or, or a few people's jobs, it's not uh, uh, just a paid position. Or anything like that. It's all of our jobs. It happens together as we are the church. The church. Even though it doesn't happen, the, you know, the same way and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're talking about individual conversations. We're talking about public preaching. We're talking about something that happens in small groups. But the, the point is that God gives each of us unique opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with the people that God has placed in our lives. And he does this each and every day. And it's probably even better news that we don't have to make it up. God has already given us the words to say. So when we know them and we use them, then his spirit empowers us to put sin to death and raise people to new life in Christ. You and I get the opportunity to participate in that. Does that excite you? It certainly excited the apostles. And so the real question Is today, now, are we still devoted enough to him, to Jesus, to actually do it, to actually do the mission? Because it's one thing to know it, but it's an entirely different thing to do it. Do we trust Jesus enough to believe that his word actually works? That it does what it says? Do we trust that Isaiah was telling us the truth that when the Lord speaks something, it doesn't return empty, but it accomplishes exactly what the Lord's purposes are? Do we trust that? And if we say we do, then the question might be, well, then what is holding us back? What keeps us from preaching this good news and from delivering this message of hope to people that need it? The second reality is that the Spirit of God reveals connections that we missed before. The Spirit of God helps us understand things more completely by connecting things that we may have missed before. This, This was certainly true for the apostles and for the people in the early church. Because remember, the filling of the Holy Spirit suddenly gave the apostles the eyes to see and the faith to believe in a moment that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. You know, these guys knew the promises that had been made in the scriptures. They had studied and they knew, but they didn't understand. But by looking into the past with the power of the Holy Spirit, they were suddenly able to see connections to the kind of future that God was calling them into. And so I can only imagine what that must have been like for them to have everything suddenly sort of just come into focus and to suddenly see that the arc of of the history of God's salvation story stretching all the way from way before they ever lived, all the way looking forward to the end of time. It was their teaching of the word of God that started to connect all those dots for lots and lots of other people to make God's salvation plan clear for other people who were also confused. Where there had been once confusion, even amongst themselves, because remember, we we read all throughout the Gospels, these disciples, they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand, no matter how many times Jesus tried to tell them, they didn't get it. But when they had the Holy Spirit given to them, suddenly they knew that Jesus was the promised one and the fulfillment of those promises. And so as we think about that, as we think about how they were given eyes to see and ears to hear how God's story all fit together, we have that same opportunity. And so if you want a good model for that, when you have a chance, just just read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two, uh, right before the scripture we're talking about today. And he also gives another fantastic sermon to a Gentile, uh, Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10. You should read that sermon as well from Peter and then read Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13. When you see these sermons, which, let's be honest, are much better than mine. But when you see these sermons, you will see how masterfully they are woven together between what has come before, what has happened now, and what is moving toward the future. In a moment, it all became clear when they knew and they believed that the promises God made in the past had been delivered in their present and were pointed toward God's desired future. Everything is coming together and pointing to a future where God is fully able to reconcile and restore the creation. We get to be part of that story. And so the apostles faithfully delivered that message that they'd been given and they passed it on all the way to us and called us to continue moving it forward. And so that's the third reality. The spirit of God sends messengers into a lost world. Over and over again, we see this The spirit of God sends us out. Acts chapter one, verse eight says this, but you, and he's talking about the apostles, but you, the apostles will receive when the Holy Spirit has come on you, sorry, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were called as witnesses to testify to who this Jesus was because they were given the revelation that completed this work of God's promise to delivery to the future. The message was entrusted to them. And it was through the illumination of the Spirit that the apostles finally understood themselves to be the caretakers of this saving message of the gospel of Jesus. They didn't sit around and keep this to themselves. It wasn't for their consumption, it was for their distribution. And so they would go around and they would preach and they would proclaim this message to the world, knowing that. The future that they were imagining, even the future now that is 2,000 years from when they talked about it, is still the same reality that we are living in right now today as Grace Church. They have already passed on to us what is vital. And they've not only done that, they've invited us into their mission. And that mission was commissioned by Jesus and powered by the Holy Spirit, and then just as they were sent by God, we too are being sent by God that we can continue to help people know this salvation story and be part of this salvation story that God is not yet done writing. But that doesn't mean that we should expect that this work is somehow easy or or comfortable or anything like that. In fact, we should expect just the opposite. We should expect people to think that we're nuts. We should expect people to laugh at us and ridicule us. We should expect people not to take us seriously. That is not what we worry about. We worry about whether or not we're willing to do it. Are we devoted enough to even give the message? Paul helps us think about this uh, expectation of not being taken seriously in 1 Corinthians. uh, Starting in verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is a wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness So we should expect to meet resistance. Matter of fact, Paul himself was relentlessly abused and eventually killed for preaching this very message that we're talking about. Why? Because the world does not want to hear it. But that doesn't mean it isn't vital. In fact, without the gospel, there is no church. Lots of people have tried this, but without the gospel, there is no church. There's no substitute for Jesus. Jesus is not some kind of mascot. He's the savior of the world. And because of that, the apostles teaching is, is never easy or comfortable, but through it, God's Holy Spirit brings the dead to life. That is amazing. But are we, again, are we honest now? Are we devoted enough to actually do it? Because remember, doing is the expression of true devotion. And so I just want us to try something today, right here and right now. Would you just pray with me for a few moments by by asking God to reveal to you just one person that he is sending to you in your life who desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, if you need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ right now today, then we will pray for you as well. And we would love for you to, to follow up with us and, and send us a message on the on the chat, and we will have people that will pray with you and, and help you understand what, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But when we think about who needs to hear this, maybe it's a, maybe it's a coworker, a friend, uh, or, or maybe somebody that you just meet on the street, or maybe it's even a family member. But, but if you're willing, we're going to pray in just a moment, and I, I just would like you to ask the Lord to put someone on your heart that needs to hear this message, and then just pray for the opportunity that God would give you the chance to speak life into this person. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you love all who you have created. and We know that there's so many desperately lost people in the world and so Lord, would you give us the courage to be bold and to be confident, not in our own abilities, but in who you are, knowing that many, many people have come before us for thousands of years that have preached this message and have furthered the mission you have of bringing your kingdom to earth. So Lord, we just ask right now, would you put somebody on our heart that you are sending us to? Would you give us the confidence and the words to say that we might win people, not so that we can say, oh, look what we've done, but we can win people for your glory and for their dignity. We thank you, Lord, that you don't ask us to do this alone, but instead you have promised to be with us by the power of your spirit that whenever we preach your word, you are right there making it real and active. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you, I pray that you will send one of the people gathered right now in this place, online, in garages, wherever, that you will send people to ones who are seeking answers. Lord, help us to not delay. Help us to be devoted and committed to your word so that we might not just know, but actually do your mission. We thank you for who you are and how you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.